In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you have gathered us around your word um, to hear your strict judgment against our sin, but also how your tender, loving kindness, your compassion, your mercy has driven you to give your Son, Jesus, to die for us, to atone for us, to take our place, to be our substitute, uh, and to have victory over sin, death, and devil, so that we would live forever in him. May your uh, Holy Spirit place our hearts upon this truth today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Micah 6. Yeah, what did I do with my, my six notes? Well, it doesn't matter. I'll just use one of these. So, let's see. What did we... I said we'd use this to just recap or to review after we study. I think that seems to work better. Uh, so, where did we leave off? Did we talk about which questions? Hmm. I think we talked about chapter 6 being really, as it says at the top, the Lord's charge, you are destroying yourself. Uh, God's law. But this, this is a... We're back to hearing a harsh word from God, right? And so, yeah, Ron. I don't know what we went to question five. Yeah, I think, I think we got close to question five. The people, however, would not repent. Okay, so nine, what is true wisdom? To recap, true wisdom is, well, look in verse nine. The Lord's voice cries to the city, wisdom shall see your name. Uh, notice wisdom is capitalized, which means... <laughs> According to the translator, wisdom is a thing. Uh, no, wisdom is a doesn't, person. It doesn't Solomon refer to wisdom as a person? Yeah, Solomon too refers to wisdom as a person. So um, capitalization usually indicates proper name, right? So who, who, <laughs> who bears the name of wisdom? Jesus. Jesus does, that's right. Uh, famous hymn. You know, quite well. It's actually, it wasn't originally a hymn. It was turned into a hymn, uh, 357. Um, but actually, it was, it's a hymn based upon antiphons, which you, you're starting to learn, I think, what antiphons are. Maybe you remember from days of old. That's the thing that we sing before and after the psalm. Sometimes it's from the psalm. Sometimes they're extra. Like in the intro, there's the part that repeats at the beginning and the end. That's the antiphon. There were antiphons for when you would sing matins each day um, during the week before Christmas. So matins is the morning service, of course. And, uh, you know, before we sing the Venite, right? O come, let us worship the Lord, which is Psalm, what? 90-something, 90 90 98, I think, I don't know. 90-something. Uh, I just know it by the Latin name, <laughs> Venite. There's the O come, let us worship him. That comes before it, O come. That's your response. Uh, that's the antiphon. Well, there's antiphons for the Magnificat as well. So my soul magnifies the Lord. But there was an antiphon before, and there's one for each day, starting on December 17th. And the one for December 17th is a wisdom proceeding from the mouth of the Most High, pervading and permeating all creation, creation mightily ordering all things. Come, teach us the way of prudence. All right, so as it's preceding the mouth of God, it sounds as if it's a word. Pervading and permeating all creation, but proceeding from the mouth of the Most High. Well, what proceeds from the mouth of the Most High, meaning the Father, is the word, the, word, the Son. That's right. Uh, who pervades and permeates all creation and who orders all things. I talked about this with the catechumens um, on Wednesday in our, in our class, that the... Um, 
that the reason why we end all of our, our prayers and our collects, especially through Jesus Christ our Lord, is because he's the word that the Father, that the Father speaks, that, that gives you and provides for you all things, not just salvation, of course, but, but actually he's the word that ordered you know, the, the light from the darkness and the sea from the land and the, what, the, the, the created the, the flowering plants and the, and the beasts of the field and the great sea creatures and ordered the stars in space, which is just amazing to think of. Um, God, Jesus Christ is the one who set the stars in space. Of course, that makes sense at Christmas time. He uses the star to guide the wise men to himself. How's that? <laughs> so anyway, he orders all things. Come teach us the way of prudence. Gosh, I don't even know what prudence means. Do you know what prudence means? It's another word for wisdom, right? But what, what's your good definition of that? Define prudence. Let's see what she says. The quality of being prudent. <laughs> that is not helpful. Cautiousness. No, that's not so bad. That's, that's not so bad. I mean, wisdom orders you um, towards the good and away from, the, from evil, from, from the bad, right? And so that's what we're asking here. And the way we sing that in the hymn is, O come thou wisdom from on high, who orderest all things mightily, to us the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. <laughs> well, now that's interesting, right? Because there the wisdom takes a f- person of a female, uh, female word. Which is how Solomon puts it. And that's how Solomon puts it too, yeah. So both says that Christ is our wisdom, but that wisdom itself is personified in terms of uh, the feminine. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring up a point uh, I've heard before that I have an NIV Bible. Mm-hmm. And I've heard before that there are passages that are not translated correctly in there. And I think this might be one of them because uh, <clears throat> verse 9 here says, Listen, the Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Mm. Oh, I see. Yeah. So it takes away the personification of it. That's that's. I think it's clear, and it's clear at least. Uh, let's see. What is that verse nine we said? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, you can understand it either way, but it's it's really there because um, there's no capitalization in Greek or in Hebrew, so it doesn't really help you. It's all caps, so it's hard to know when are you referring to. Like uh, in the sense of just a generic the, noun or a first person. Yeah. The, uh, the following <clears throat> sentences make it sound like it's the law. It does, yeah. Where it says, Heed the rod and, <clears throat> um, and the one who appointed it. Right. Right. Well, and here's the thing that makes us maybe a little uncomfortable um, is that if Christ is the Word, then his, He is uh, for us both law and gospel. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, I think we, we'd like to believe that Jesus comes only with tender words. You know, he, he certainly only comes with mercy. But how does his mercy lived out in the life of the Christian? It's, it's not alone in saying good things. Um, but in order for you to receive mercy, you must know your need for mercy. <laughs> right? So um, I have a, a book somewhere in the the shelves, all the books over there, I have them double stacked at the moment, so it's hard to kind of find things. But I get, needed to get them out of the boxes so I could start to find things. I have one that's called um, uh, No More 
Christian nice guy. Uh, is the, and I don't remember the author's name, but he, uh, he was trying to react to this back in the early 2000s and that Jesus was kind of, he was this kind of soft character and that he never had a harsh word to say, which isn't really true. Um, you know, never mind the destruction of Jerusalem, which he prophesied, or the destruction of the temple in particular, um, the casting out of the, of the money changers in the temple, right? Where he goes through with a whip of cords. It doesn't sound like he's so pleasant right there, right? And, and so that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable, but you're right. It's the law being spoken. Um, but how does the law order one? Again, away from that which is evil or which is not good for you towards the good and towards what is um, helpful for you. And Jesus does that, right? If we're asking him to guide us, it's not just to show us the way to go, but to show us where to flee, <laughs> what to leave behind. Does that make sense? All right. And uh, this comes up, uh, it will come up maybe today as I introduce the adult catechumens to this as well, in that, uh, at least in some places, like in Alexandria, which was in Egypt, um, and also in Jerusalem, the, um, in the first two centuries of the church, one of the practices um, for, catech- for catechism, as we call it, catechesis, the teaching of the catechism, was, uh, even with adults, that you would be you would learn for three years, thereabouts. And you would have a sponsor. We have sponsors, right, with children, but not usually with adults. We probably should. Um, and the point was, <laughs> with adults, they've accumulated all sorts of, not only ideas, but uh, behaviors, actions, deeds, thoughts, over, you know, however old they are, the decades. And those things, uh, when they're contrary to God's word, they're perhaps a little harder to overcome than it might be for a child who, for lack of a better word, in the ways of the world, are more innocent, just haven't been exposed and haven't, haven't had the opportunity to um, do certain things, certainly haven't been through puberty and all the things that come along with that as well. So adults would have a long period, longer than children, <laughs> long period of instruction, but it wasn't just instruction. It had examination <laughs> along with it. And the, the ju- sponsor's job was to keep watch. Not only help them learn, but to keep watch. Um, and, to, and then to call them to repentance when they went back to their old ways. So think about Paul. I mean, he even instructs this in the, in the epistles, that, you know, let the thief give up thieving, <laughs> something like that, right? And the murder, you know, uh, to, set, to put behind your old way of life. It's not an easy thing to do, depending on, especially if it was your livelihood, right? The thief, <laughs> I mean, that's how they lived. Um, or uh, the prostitute. I mean, that's their way of life. It's not just a it's not just way of life. It's their, their means of providing for themselves. So then the Christian church would have to fill that gap as well. So um, help from within their own nets provide means of income, right? Some, some work. So that's when people say, you know, you should support Christian businesses. Um, that's true. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but that's more, I think, what more, more of what the scripture has in mind is that, um, that the Christian business owners within the congregation provide for the, those in the congregation good employment. It's that way around, not the other way around. So if that makes sense, uh, although you can support them too by buying their merchandise. All right, so true wisdom, um, I would say, is Christ himself. And again, law and gospel, not just gospel. Um, and here, that, that, that really, that harsh word saying that, you know, following after the statutes of Omri 
or doing the works of Ahab's house, walking in the councils of Jezebel, um, you know, of, of uh, Baal and Ashtoreth, uh, that, that that is going to have a very significant consequence for you, which is your, your horror. You will be made a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing, and you will bear the reproach of my people. Now, uh, the word itself, Jesus himself, actually bears that reproach for us, right? Which is, um, it, that's in the background. I think we talked about kind of the levels of meaning. That's also in the background here, is that uh, what do we deserve? We deserve to be, to, not, to, to eat and not be satisfied. Look at verse 14, hunger, to be hungry, um, to be put into exile, uh, to be placed under the sword. And yet, who bears that for us? Who is the one who's abandoned by his father, who's, who's abused, um, even killed? Not by a sword. Well, a, a spear pierced him, right? Yeah. Uh, or as Luke says, uh, a sword shall pierce your soul also, saying to Mary, his mother. So, I mean, death through violent act right there. So Jesus bears all of that. So that's at the end of verse, or chapter 6. Verse, uh, question five on your sheet. The people, however, would not repent and live in the fear of the Lord. Go figure. So the Lord says ominously, therefore, I shall strike you. What would soon happen to their stomachs, their savings, their crops, their olive trees, and their grape vines? What's going to happen to all of that? Best guess? It comes up in the next chapter. What's that? Yeah, destruction, right? Desolation. Um, it's lost. It's gone. They, won't, they will work and not receive. They'll be hungry and, and never be full. Um, their, their grapevines will not yield grapes. Their olive trees, not olives. Or in Jesus' own ministry, you know, he comes and he finds the fig tree and there's no, no figs. Comes back later. Still no figs and he curses it, right? You say, well, that's kind of harsh. You know, it's just having a bad year. <laughs> Um, but that, that is to show that um, the fruit of faith, well, fruit, faith bears fruit, would say it that way. Right? And where faith is lacking, then fruit will be as well. And uh, what good is a tree that bears no fruit? Yeah, cut it down, burn it. At least you get fuel out of it, right? Some heat in the winter, <laughs> not so bad. I was thinking about that the other day. You think about you know, the ancestors of this congregation before they had like, things like fuel oil and uh, and propane and uh, or natural gas, if you have that, uh, or electricity even. Uh, you would, for this winter, I mean, I I told Dale I need to repent because I said the, you know, that I thought it was a pretty mild winter and I was I was kind of upset about that because I moved two hours north and I thought it'd be worse. And the last couple of weeks have lived up to my expectations. <laughs> but to think about just to prepare even for the last few weeks, how how much wood you would have had to cut for fuel, right? Maybe just kept it a little cooler. But at least, so I mean, if it's sub-zero, you, you've got to have a fire going um, because the difference between life and death, right? So, um, yeah, just think about how much effort would have to be put into that. Uh, imagine if you made all the effort and you still didn't have enough. I mean, I think that's kind of the picture that's going on here. All right, so let's, let's try to apply a little bit, actually, because we haven't done as much of that. What are some ways you might, or at least I do it, I integrate the application as we're studying. What are some ways you might change your life and act with more justice and love toward a person? What areas of pride should you root out? 
and how can you begin to walk more humbly before your God? That's kind of personal questions, aren't they? So I don't necessarily have to reveal that out loud. You can say it to me privately if you like, (laughs) if it's in confession, right? But how, how might you change that? What is love? How do you know how to love? Well, I just, I just kind of gave it away a little bit there, didn't I? I think we talk about this at length. People think of love as an emotion or a char- you know, part of your character, your emotional character. But it's an action. Well, it's not just emotion. I, I would, but it, um, like the Bible says, love your neighbor. Well, how do you do that? Uh, we went to a, uh, I think it was marriage and Conquer years ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the main phrases that they use is love is an action word. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I mean, no greater love than this, that one man lay down his life for his friends, right? That's what Jesus says. Um, well, there very clearly love is in laying down one's life, right? Um, how do you love God and love your neighbor? Well, love for God is expressed in faith and trust, right? Um, not in terms of sacrifice. <laughs> the Bible is very clear about that. You know, all the bulls and the rams and the goats and all the things you could sacrifice, is, is, that's not how you love God. You love God by trusting in him and receiving from him. Unlike what we heard on Catholic Radio on the way in, why do we go to the Mass? I don't get anything out of the Mass, was the question. And, and so what does the priest say? Well, then you need to put something into it. You're like, No, the answer is, you don't get anything out of the Mass because you don't recognize what you do receive, which is Christ's body and blood for your forgiveness. It's forgiveness... If anything, you receive the forgiveness of sins in the Lord's body and blood. What, what more could you ask from the Lord than to have your sins forgiven? I mean, so, but anyway, Catholic Radio, there you go. You know, you need to go make us more sacrifices because that'll make God happy, and that will give. Then you'll find some value in the Mass, um, which is right in keeping with their theology. So it's nice to hear them actually agree with what they what they actually believe. Um, but how do you love your neighbor? It's in complete self-sacrificial service, you might say, right? So love for neighbor, I mean, love for spouse. <laughs> Husband and wives know this. No, this is true. Uh, but even children and parents, right? You say, I love you, and then you don't take out, oh, I'll look at Ethan. You don't take out the garbage. Well, if you, <laughs> you can say it, but I mean, what's, you don't even have to say it. If you take out the garbage, we're going to say we love you because <laughs> that, that garbage smelled, you know, or whatever. You see how it works? Yeah, so, um, I don't know. You could, it, it, Luther says it uh, this, this way about the angels rejoicing when the father changes the dirty diaper. You know, and you think, what, well, one, I think he recognizes that that's kind of a rare occurrence. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and the, but the second aspect of that is that that, actually, that is what um, pleases God. You know? and, that, and that's on the last day, that's what... Um, what he commends us for, right? When did we see you hungry and thirsty and in prison and naked? Well, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, right? uh, my children, you did it unto me. So how, how can you act with more justice and love towards the person? Well, there it is. What areas of pride should you root out? That's the flip side of it, right? You can't be proud and boastful, but not live for your neighbor at the same time. Because to live for your neighbor is to live humbly before them. To do what's best for them, not do what you think is best for them necessarily, uh, unless you have God's word behind you, right? And that's really how, how what it means to walk humbly before your God is to have hands open, receiving everything from Him, 
Um, but not for your own benefit, not for your own pride or boasting or storing up treasures like, uh, you know, for yourself, but storing them up for heaven. When Jesus says, store up for your treasures, heaven where moth cannot... Well, is that, is that your house, your car, your 401k, your, uh, even the congregation you know, facility, any of that kind of stuff? Can you take those things with you? We talked about that last week. There's no U-Haul behind the hearse. <laughs> no, what are the treasures that moth cannot destroy or moth and rust cannot destroy? Better question is, who are they? Right? It's, it's, the, it's actually faithful Christians who go with you <laughs> into, into heaven because of your witness to them, your service to them. Um, so that's what it really means to walk humbly, is to live for the other, I, I would say. Uh, and in that way, express your faith towards God, your trust in him, that he will provide for you um, as you live for them. Uh, it aggravated Katie Luther uh, to no end, so much so that if you go to the, in Wittenberg, if you, or Wittenberg, if you, I'm going to be German today, um, if you go to the black cloister, you know, to the home that was a cloister, they turned into his home, his rectory, um, if you go in the basement where the cellar is, there was a, I, when I was there last, and I've only been there once, but when I was there, there was a little plaque, and it had this quote from Katie. I think it was, what do you say, apocryphal? But, um, you know, how aggravated she was with Luther because he kept inviting people over all the time, and she had nothing to feed them, and she had come up with a new meal or whatever. I think it's probably true as well. But she was particularly wealthy. I don't know if you know that. Until the Thirty Years' War, she, she was the... We would, I guess we call her the brew mistress for town. Um, she had the largest farm in town, like, you know, the Vorpal farm, right? And, so she, and she was the one that provided food for that town of 2000, for the most part, the gardens, vegetables, but also all the brew. Um, so she was pretty well provided for, I guess is the point, until the Thirty Years' War, when they came and destroyed her farm, actually. Uh, and then she did die uh, a pauper, um, at least according to the records, so... Um, but but uh, Wittenberg wasn't in any better shape either. So yeah, they, there's twenty. There's basically twenty residencies in that in that cloister. So Luther, you know, he had friends over all the time, and uh, that's part of the deal. But that's how he 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 expressed it. But he kind of, I imagine it was kind of like this. Hey, uh, he didn't call her up. He just kind of showed up at the door. Hey, you know, so and so is coming over. He came for a lecture today, and he's just going to stay over the night. Can you have stuff ready for him? And uh, she did describe uh, that Luther was a pretty filthy... I mean, she describes him as a pig. <laughs> as far as his, like, even just... He, he didn't, like, clean his bed sheets, or... It was kind of a slob. Yeah. So, so what did the plaque on the wall say? The plaque on the wall, it was a quote about, you know, how... Uh, basically, Luther's behavior in inviting people over, you know, was going to... Um, what's our expression? Eat, them out, eat us out of house and home. That kind of idea. So lamenting... Um, Luther's proclivity to just invite people over to stay over the night or stay for months, actually, you know. But if you read the histories, this is very important because um, people came to study at Wittenberg from all over the world, um, not really even on invitation, just on a, like a, a whim, you know. And, and so the English reformers, the early English reformers, like Robert Barnes, studied in Wittenberg under Luther, even though an Englishman. Um, we did uh, for higher things podcast uh, this the episode that came out yesterday. Uh, we looked at um, uh, Sparatus. We looked at his hymn um, "Salvation and Justice Come" five fifty five, 
And uh, Sparato's an interesting guy. He was a, he was a mayor, but the same story. He, he ended up in Wittenberg on travels, um, stayed there for a little longer than I think what he planned, and really learned. He was a full-on Roman Catholic and learned from Luther uh, and was um, convicted by God's word and brought, brought into um, Lutheran Reformation and then ended up as a mayor <laughs> writing um, some really terrific hymns that were in the first Lutheran hymnal. That one was 1524 right away. So there you go. All right. Chapter seven. Is that good on six? Oh, yeah, it's good on six. Let's not belabor the point. Chapter seven. Let's read the first part. Maybe uh, I don't know where yours breaks off. Mine breaks off at verse seven. So let's read one through seven. Ethan read last week, so anyone else? I'm not going to assign you to read. That's kind of cruel. Or I can. What misery is mine? <clears throat> I am like the one who gathers some of fruit. At the gleaning of the vineyard, there is no cluster of grapes to eat, mm-hmm. none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land, not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn's thorn hedge. (laughs) The day of your watchman has come. The day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Wow. Now, Luther says that um, this chapter, chapter 7, uh, well, I'll just quote it. He has brought together into one small package, as it were, his entire prophecy. So um, he would see this chapter 7 as a summary of the whole book, right? He first rebukes the wicked way of life of the people and then passes over to the kingdom of Christ. Bless you. Moreover, he presses his case for the people with great affection. He has a great thirst for the salvation of his people. With great exertion, he urges and does everything to turn them away from their wickedness. All right? Which I think, again, that's helpful to remember. Because um, when we hear God's word of, of, of judgment or law against sin, um, the temptation is to hear it as, as abusive, Right? Um, or vindictive in a, outside of justice, right? That it's unjust, that it's just meanie pants, God. <laughs> if you want to speak like a child. Do you guys say that? I don't know. Mr. Meanie Pants. You know, he's just, he's, just, he's just mean for the sake of being mean. Um, but parents know this, teachers know this, right? That um, when there is punishment, it's not, well, I mean, if it's done faithfully, it's not done to hurt and harm, but it's actually, again, for repentance to return them to the way they should go, <laughs> right? And also, I mean, I suppose to demonstrate, as God has too, um, there is going to be consequence, earthly consequence for their action, 
And maybe that's one, one thing that makes people very uncomfortable um, is that uh, the forgiveness of sins is God setting aside the eternal punishment for sin, meaning no death, right? No hell. Forgiveness of sins is not God setting aside earthly punishment, right? So, for example, uh, well, I saw this actually play out in my congregation uh, that we were a member of in uh, Illinois, Lockport, um, where the congregational president, did I tell you this story? I feel like I told you. Um, He was convicted of a federal offense. He sold, I didn't tell you this, okay. He was a rare meat seller, if you know there is such things. He had a shop where he sold rare, rare game meats and other meats. Um, and through negligence, uh, I never got the full story from him. It doesn't matter. Uh, but he ended up selling endangered meat, endangered species meat, which is against, it's an international law. And so the federal law connects to the international law. It's against the law. Can't do that. Um, and so he was convicted, um, uh, in federal court actually. And he was our congregational president. So, I mean, what's one thing you could say? Well, he went to the pastor, he confessed his sins and now there's no you know, you should be able, now the governor should let him, or the, not the governor, the, uh, you know, whatever circuit court or whatever it was, should let him, you know, should set it aside because he repented. He said he was sorry. Uh, is that what happened? <laughs> no, he was convicted. He went to prison. Um, he did confess before the pastor. He also confessed before the congregation because there's a way that, that I mean, that was a public scandal. It was in, it was in, on WGN. It was in the paper. As like ever, no, he, um, for our sake, it was important that he um, let us know, you know, and tell us that uh, he was accepting, um, he, ple- he pled guilty, actually, and accepted whatever punishment the judge saw fit. And then actually, I uh, was a great witness there in the, um, not, not through compulsion, but actually just by his own benefit. He said, well, if I'm in prison, I might as well make the most of this. And so he actually led Bible studies in, in federal prison, which is kind of cool. Yeah. We have examples of that in the Bible. David sinned and... He lost his son. Yeah. And so, I mean, they are going to go into exile. I mean, the prophet's not lying. It's not like, oh, repent, and then everything will go well for you. No, they're going to go into exile. God will restore them, though, as well. And that restoration is always... That's the, maybe that's where the, the tricky part is. Like, when is the restoration? Right? Is it going to be immediately? No, as we read in the, in the chronicle, uh, Chronicler this, mm-hmm. this week, a really remarkable statement that uh, when God sent his people into exile for 70 years in Babylon, that uh, it, he says that the land, the land of Judah, will, receive, will have a Sabbath. They'll just have a 70-year Sabbath rest. You think, does the land need to just rest? Well, you think about it. I mean, there's been contention over that land for a long time. And it's kind of like, just let everything cool down for a bit. Let the pe- people go into exile. It sounds horrible, but they'll come back and the land will have... It's just like farmer, right? Um, you know, sometimes you have to let the land lay fallow, right? And not plant so that through cycles or whatever, that, the, that it can be regenerated, right? Renewed in its mineral resources or whatever is needed to be planted there. Or you have to rotate crops. It's the same reason, right? Because if you plant the same crop year after year, that's, those same resources are going to be depleted. Uh, from the land. Uh, that maybe makes us a little uncomfortable because I think that does have import for us in the church. As sometimes it's worth us um, setting aside something that we trust in <laughs> or that we think is really important um, 
and to step back and maybe let it just lay fallow for a bit as, so that we can contemplate and, and think it through and rethink it through rather than keep rushing headlong into something without ever really being too thoughtful about it. And uh, I mean, I know there's the reality that if you'd like say, didn't have, I don't know what it would be, like a pancake breakfast that you have every year and then you, you don't have it one year, you think you're gonna lose momentum and then it'll never come back again. And oh, woe is us because we don't have our pancake breakfast. I know, that's really important. That was sarcasm, okay, good. Um, but, but you get the idea. I mean, yeah, it's true. You might lose some momentum. But if you do it again, you're going to do it through an intentional effort. And you're going to care about it. And you're going to say, this is important to us. And it's not just going to be because we always do it. But it's going to be because we know why we're doing it. And we see where, how it benefits us and that sort of thing. So, and God does the same thing with his own people and with his own land. So that when they return from exile, um, there is a faithful remnant that comes back waiting for the redemption of Israel. Because when they do come back, it's going to be under Roman occupation, well, after the Maccabee stuff. Yeah. So it's not, they're really never going to be free again, actually, in the way that they were. So there were, there were consequences. But of course, um, in God's omniscience and his, and his, his foreknowledge, um, this was all the means by which God teaches us that this kingdom on earth of Israel, that's not the final thing. It's not the end. It's, a, it's really just... It's, it's pointing us to the need for a greater kingdom, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom where Christ is its temple and, and its nation, and we are joined to him. So, All right, where were we? We were looking here. Oh, I was, just, I was reading Luther, and then I went off on... Good. So, woe is me. <laughs> for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There's no cluster to eat. And of the first ripe fruit, which my soul desires. Uh, we've heard this expression before, right? About somebody going into the vineyard. I mentioned the fig tree, but going into the vineyard and having nothing to gather. Where have we heard that before? Hmm. Any ideas? Is there maybe you studied by lots of minutes? Where's the question? Where have we heard in scriptures or elsewhere, where have we heard about this idea of going into the vineyard and not having any grapes? Nothing to glean, no harvest. Do you have ideas? I may, I may have not given you enough background story on this one. Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah has it. Um, certainly Isaiah 5. So I don't know if you want to jump there, but Isaiah 5, verse 2. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built the tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth grapes, good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Yeah. So that's God's perspective on his work. <laughs> right? I mean, if you want to look, you could look at your life that way. You could look at all of creation or even the history of the church this way. He did everything necessary so that this would be a productive vineyard, right? To give forth good grapes. And yet, what did it bring forth? Only bad. Only bad. Yeah, you're quoting. I was trying to find where that was in Jeremiah, but... Yeah. Did you not find it? No. Okay. Um, I don't think it's Jeremiah. I'm looking. I mean, Ethan's remembering the Good Friday service again, aren't you? Yeah. One of yeah. them is Jeremiah. Maybe it's not the one I was thinking of. Reference to Jeremiah 8 verse 20. Yeah, that might be it. That sounds right. 
Uh, let's go look. Oh, let's do it in English. <laughs> Jeremiah 8, verse what? 8, verse 20. Okay. Let's see what he says. I have some others too, but the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. No, that's, that's certainly that expression. How about, um, how about actually Deuteronomy 32, verse 32? This one is pretty harsh. Oh, this, of course, this is, is Moses, but oh my, this is a really, this is a really terrifying sermon. Uh, yeah, Moses spoke to the, to the assembly of Israel. Um, at, because he had provoked, <laughs> provoked, they had provoked him. And so his expression is, for their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah, uh, two places that we'd like to visit. Their grapes are grapes of poison and their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Right? So is that good grapes? You have only yielded bad grapes, if you like, or evil grapes. That's pretty intense, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so what good are they then? What good are bitter grapes? No sugar, right? And no sugar means if the grapes lack sugar, no sweetness. They're not sweet and they won't ferment. That's right, so no wine either. So what good are they? Nothing, right? Cut them down, throw them away, burn them. It's like a Moana I've never seen before. But I saw the beginning of it. Naomi just, she loves Disney. What was it? Oh, yeah, because the, the island's only giving forth these rotten coconuts, right? So she's like, I'll plant them farther up the, tree, the hill. I, I imagine it probably didn't work, did it? Because the whole island was corrupted. Actually, it's a nice, that's actually a nice picture of it. So, because what's actually the problem here? Is it the, the vine that's the problem? Is it the vineyard that the Lord has set up? the ground it's actually you know like jesus says it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles him but what comes out right and from the heart come all manners of wickedness right so where's the real problem (laughs) we actually have an expression for this you know that god has to root out evil right so to, to root it out means you have to dig all the way to the to the depths and get it out right i think about like um friend of mine had potentially a, a tumor, a, a cancerous tumor on his leg. And they, you know, they literally just have to cut out a chunk of your leg and hope and just try to get it all. Or like with the, your daughter, the, you know, it, it rooted into the lymph nodes. Right. And then it, that's what, and then it can spread. Like, cause that's a, that's actually a root system in the body, isn't it? Right. The lymphatic system. So it's pretty hard to root out then once it's in the roots. Right. Because it spreads from system to system. My mother had uh, appendix cancer, so it was a little bit different. It wasn't in the roots, but when when it, it it had spread from the appendix into the whole abdominal cavity, pretty much it's basically like cancer cells get on everything. It was really horrible. It's pretty rare cancer, by the way. Um, she had the, the, the surgery for that. They called the mother of all surgeries. There's only at the time there were only I think five hospitals in the U.S. that would do it. Um, so, yeah, we went, had to go to Cincinnati for that, actually. All right, bing, ding. So, uh, what good is it? It's not good for anything, right? 
The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood, and every man hunts his brother with a net. That's pretty. So that not only do, do they not bear fruit, but, but how is that actually manifest in their life? Is it brother against brother, mother against daughter? Actually, he gets to that later, doesn't he? Mother-in-law against mother-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Daughter rising against her mother. Son dishonoring his father. Um, even the one that lies in your bosom, that would be your spouse. Uh, you can't put confidence in. That's what it looks like. Now, is that love? <laughs> no, it's the opposite, right? Where neighbor is against neighbor. Um, we could even probably add in their pastor against his congregation. Congregation against his pastor. If you want to put that in there, you could do that. Um, you know, that's how, it's, how it plays out. But here in two, there's no one left that's faithful, right? The faithful have perished from the earth. And there's no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. That's vengeance, right? But that's not God's vengeance. That's, what do we call it? Revenge, right? Yeah, revenge. Revenge. And they all, every man hunts his brother with a net, with like a, a cord, woven cords. So, um, I don't know, have you ever been in a conversation where you perceive that maybe the person was trying to entrap you? Actually, that's the term, isn't it? You know, it's actually against the law for like a, uh, I don't know, a detective or a policeman to entrap you, right? To set you up to get caught. That's against the law, even if you were doing wrong, Right? Is that right? Yeah. So um, that's interesting, isn't it? But entrapment, it's like man against what you're trying. There are people who are trying to catch you in your words and to use your words against you. That would be one way that works, right? Um, or to maybe put you in a situation where uh, they know that you know, you're going to fail, set you up for failure to do that. Uh, it'd be like if you had an alcoholic friend and then you say, let's go to the bar. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And you're like, just don't go to the bar. Just go somewhere else, right? You know, where that isn't the center of the culture of the place, you know, is drinking. Um, why would you set your neighbor up for that? Um, maybe because you're trying to, to um, you're trying to tempt them so that they fall. So that's bad grapes. That's bitter grapes, right? Bitter fruit. Not faith. That they may successfully do evil with both hands. <laughs> Prince asking for gifts, a judge seeking a bribe. What's that about? Prince seeking gifts or asking for gifts. Is that expression clear to us? It's a little, it's a little off for me. What? You want to say something, Ethan? Sounds as if um, I'm, it's it, it's almost like it's rather just um, an analogy, and not not something that's actually happening, but somebody. Who, it sounds like somebody who's spoiled, constantly asking yeah. for something. Yeah, I mean, does the prince need gifts? No. Uh, Luther suggests that maybe it's two things, and then I'll answer you there. Um, perhaps it's the prince demanding unbearable taxes, or just heavy taxing. Right. Yeah, what were you going to say, Ron? That's what I was going to say. It's like taxing people. Yeah. Un- unjustly, right? I mean, taxation is not against the scriptures, although usury is. What's the difference? I mean, Jesus has to pay your taxes, right? Uh, 
give to Caesar what is owed Caesar. But what, what is not commended? You know, the, the practice of what, what they, the tax collectors, right, who, who unjustly demand what has not been required according to the, their government, right? Who takes a, they take bribes, that kind of thing, or they ask for more than what, what is just. Or they take taxes for evil. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah, and um, this is always the delicate thing when it comes to federal or any kind of uh, government. It could be congregational government, but actually secular government is that we have two commands. One is to obey them, and two is that we don't do anything contrary to God's word. Um, and where those two intersect is sometimes a little bit challenging, right? So if the federal government says, um, you must, say for example, they said to the church, you must preach something contrary to God's word. Well, we must obey God rather than men, right? So there, that's the intersection and say, no, now that this is civil disobedience is required of us, actually, by God's word. Um, not contrary to his other word, but where you can pay taxes without sin, well, then what's the problem? Even if it's, um, what's her name? Alexandria Casio cortez Can't believe I know that name now. Um, it comes into prominence. Well, this is how you set somebody up for a candidacy for president. Um, as you talk about them all the time, remember, uh, Mr. Obama was that way, right? Junior junior congressman and basically one term, right? And his second, it was in the midst of his second term? Did he even... It wasn't even a full term. wasn't even a full term. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Um, anyway, it's like she said, you know, her whole tax plan, 70% taxation for the, for the rich, something like that. Yeah, it seems unjust to me. Um, but if you could do it without sin, I mean, I guess. It seems pretty, pretty intense. Judge, and, and unnecessary, judge seeking a bribe. Well, that's pretty clear what that means, right? <laughs> Bribing the judge. Uh, it's like we're in Soviet Russia here <laughs> um, because the judge is unjust. And the only way to actually, if you're innocent, the only way to be um, not remanded to the, to the bailiff is, to, uh, is actually to pay him off. And a great man utters his evil desire. So a great man there doesn't mean somebody who's terrific. Who we love and who's cherished, but somebody important, right? Yeah, you were going to say one. Um, I was just skimming through this chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. Yeah. And I think an important verse there is uh, verse 15, where it says, Jeshur, I don't know who I didn't know who it was. I know, but, uh, <clears throat> it's another name for um, Israel, I guess, mm-hmm. for the uh, upright one that is Israel. It says, uh, they, Jeshua and grew fat and kicked, filled with food and became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and he rejected the rock as Savior. And that brings on all these calamities. Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, <clears throat> everything that we experience that we would call not good, bad, evil, sickness, um, oppression, whatnot, it's all, it's actually all a result of our own sin and the sins of the world. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and yeah, an evil death is to die outside of faith, right? But it's an even death. Or even death, yeah, even death. The wages of sin is death. Not, and this, I suppose it makes us uncomfortable, but I mean, this is what it means to be humble, right? Is that we accept God's just decree, you know, or actually the, the, the rule uh, that says, 
you know, the wages of sin is death. That, that the res- your death is actually a result of uh, your concup- concupiscence, if you want to use the old theological term. We call it original sin, right? That you are by nature sinful and unclean, as we say in our confession. Uh, it doesn't make us comfortable. It doesn't uplift us so much. But again, it's, not, it's, it's meant to humble you so that you'll be lifted up, not in yourself or your, through your own deeds, actions, or words, but through Christ and his forgiveness, his, his thoughts, words, and deeds for you. Does that make sense? So that you would boast in him. Yeah, thank you, Ramon. Uh, oh, man, man utters, so they scheme together. Well, that makes it even worse, doesn't it? So the prince who wants this unjust taxes, then you have the judge who's being bribed, and the great men who are doing all sorts of evil. Um, then they all work together, and they all conspire. And uh, I suppose we've all experienced that or seen that. Can come up with stories of that. Hmm. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. So that's like the best of the worst, right? That's kind of the expression. We have that expression, right? The best of the worst. Um, this is how helpful they are, how good they are. Um, thorns and hedges, and, and we, we've heard about these things before, right? And briars. Where did we first hear about that? The ground giving forth? In Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis. That's the consequence of sin, right? That Adam is going to have to, by the sweat of his brow, work the ground, but it's only going to bear for him what? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and, yeah, weeds and thorns and thistles. Um, which then I suppose, I never really thought about this, but I suppose then Adam is a picture for us of how God relates to us as well. Because that's how, that's how God's work seems as well, is that he does all this work for us. And what do we give forth? We be, we're thorns and hedges, you know, these briar patches that, that are sharp, sharp like sort. I mean, they're uh, sharper than a thorn hedge. This, this is such a visual um, for me. Well, it's not even just visual, it's physical. Because when my parents bought the property that they live on, uh, it had been fallow. It had been a, um, I want to say a Holstein farm. I think it was Holstein. I remember which cow. It had been a cattle farm. Um, not dairy, so maybe not Holstein. I, I can't remember what it was. Uh, and then the interstate came through. And like 200 acres ended up on one side of the interstate. And the house with 10 acres ended up on the other side of the interstate. So the farm was bisected. It ended up being the end of the farm. Because there was like, how do you even... So they sold off that property and it was all had been subdivided and for housing. But um, so that 10 acres, I mean, she couldn't she couldn't have they couldn't have cattle anymore. And then I think her husband died. And so we bought it from the widow and it had there, nobody had done anything to it for a long time. And so that meant it was covered in, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, yeah, underbrush, as we call it. But it was, they were, it was brushes and like I have scars on my arms from trying to clear out all that brush because it was all thorns. Uh, and it was bad, you know. All that was but itch for days as it was healing, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all it was worth. Um, and the day of your watchman and your, the day of your watchman and your punishment comes and now shall be their perplexity. Which is even the most incredible thing, right? Because... I mean, maybe to us, because we know God's word so well, this doesn't surprise us. 
you know, that there's all this evil uh, in the world because they had forsaken God and his word, namely his son, Jesus. But, um, but to them, it's like, what happened to us? Remember how it started? Woe is me. Woe is me. What? How did this happen? How did we get to this point? They're confused. They're perplexed. Right? And uh, maybe, we, I don't know, maybe we can be a little bit sympathetic to this. That, um, you know, I mean, this is kind of the lament of the church, broadly speaking, not this congregation necessarily, but broadly speaking right now. It's like, where did all the, pick your generation, millennials, and where's all your contemporaries? Where did they go? Actually, it's X's, my generation as well. I mean, where are they? Where'd they go? The X and Y's and millennials, they're just not here. And, and we're hopeful because they'll have children, hopefully, maybe, um, if they don't abort them or whatever, just not even bear children. And then we want their children to at least go to church like they did, so then they might show up again. That's what we hope. Um, but we're like, how did we get to this point? And uh, it's easy to blame it on, <laughs> this is where it gets uncomfortable, it's easy to blame it on other people, right? Or the society, or it's the world, or it's just kids these days, that kind of thing. You ever heard that? Yeah. Rather than, as I think Micah, and the Lord working through Micah here, is to say, mm, look, at, look at yourself. As we did back in chapter 6, look at your own hypocrisy. You know, where you say one thing and do another. Um, I don't know, look at your own behavior. I mean, uh, we're talking about ministry to inactives. We'll talk about it on, at Elders this week, Ron. Um, and uh, one of the things that makes us really uncomfortable about ministry to inactives is very often they're inactive because of, because of us. <laughs> something that was said, that was done, something that was preached, that wasn't taught well or wasn't clear, um, or it was contrary to God's word, God forbid. Um, or someone did something, or the general, I mean, it could just be even more broad. It was just, um, maybe they were here during a time of conflict, and, and it just rubbed them the wrong way, right? Now, whose fault was it? Who should bear the blame there? It's actually the congregation, or the individuals, right, or the pastor. Um, so there's a lot of repentance that needs to go around, I suppose. And that's the only way to minister to someone who's actually been offended by the church. And uh, maybe that makes us uncomfortable to talk that way. <laughs> that, you can, that the church could actually offend or abuse or neglect you. Um, but it shouldn't surprise us since uh, a church of sinners with a, a sinner for a pastor. Um, you know, there are times where it does. Where actually, I, I would argue, I think we talked about this with the school. Or maybe we didn't. I don't know who I was talking to. In my experience, Lutheran schools... Um, have worse behavior sometimes in public school. This is my mom points this out. Um, the kids, it's not because we attract like poorly behaved kids, but it's particularly because um, the devil in particular has, a, um, has every incentive to undermine a Christian school. Doesn't really care so much about a secular school. Maybe a little bit, you know, but, but not, not because there's no faith being taught. What, What's the, there's no problem. Whereas, I mean, it's like we put a big bullseye on the front door. It's like, you know, come at us, right? Undermine this. This is, this, this is, because actually this is God's work being done very particular uh, in regards to salvation, faith, right? So maybe that makes us a little uncomfortable because then we see it in the church too. It doesn't always govern itself very well. Sometimes, you know, um, things don't go very well. 
But it shouldn't surprise us, I think. Yeah. Uh, Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light, uh, etc. Right? Or uh, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 7.15. They will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. This whole picture of hypocrisy, this upside-downness, saying one thing, doing another, saying you're a Christian, not behaving that way. Um, we're not saying that anyone lacks hypocrisy. We all have that as part of our character, being sinners and saints. Um, but the difference is, is there's no repentance, right? And they actually call their evil good rather than um, uh, repent and call it what it is. Um, or take ownership, you might say, <laughs> of one's sin. Yeah. Er hat ein Unglück. Gerichtet, excuse me. He's brought about a calamity. That's uh, that was an old German proverb. Luther says, <laughs> you know, when you you somebody who brings trouble, I don't know, troublemakers. That's what we call them, right? A great man who utters his evil desire. Do we have troublemakers? <laughs> uh, I was just looking at my children. I shouldn't do that. Sorry. Don't want to point one of you out, or two, or more. You're laughing. See, that's funny. Uh, I don't know. This is awkward, isn't it? Five through seven. Don't trust a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom, from your wife. Son dishonoring father, daughter rising against his mother, or her mother, excuse me. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Man's enemies are the men of his own household. Um, but David, David prays this way in the Psalms, doesn't he? You know, I'm surrounded by my enemies, even in my own household. Um, and Jesus quotes this actually in Matthew 10. Oh, look at that. Um, when he says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Do not think I come to bring peace on earth. A man's father, man against his father, daughter against da, 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 and a man's enemies will be of those of his own household. It's right there. Matthew 10, 30, uh, really 34 to 36. And then Jesus uh, explains it this way. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So you see how that goes? Um, I don't know if, if anyone's experienced this. Um, I had experienced this actually in Indiana. I'll end on this. That um, I had a man in the congregation who married uh, a Roman Catholic. But it was an older man. Was, and he ended up dying of uh, leukemia. Um, like within my first year or so, two years. Uh, but I, uh, he, he was uncomfortable with some of our practices as Lutherans because they reminded him of his wife's church. So I had to talk to him about that and say, well, what's the, what's the problem um, with the practice? Well, you know, it's Roman Catholic, and I don't like Roman Catholics. I'm like, okay, that makes sense, given what you've told me. Maybe. And he's like, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. When, when I um, wanted to marry my wife, she would not become a Lutheran, and I wouldn't be a Roman Catholic, but we wanted to marry. Okay? And so the priest, uh, and this has been the practice until recently, the priest made, a, made me sign that my children would be raised as Catholics. 
in the Catholic Church. And so in order to marry my wife, I had to give up my children to what I believe is a false, to false teaching. And it was like, yeah, so, so I mean, his conscience is pretty burdened by that still. Um, because also his kids weren't going to church. So how well did the Roman church do at the catechesis? Uh, I think one did, maybe. But uh, so he, it was very personal for him that, I mean, he, yes, he was married to his wife, but he also, for the sake of faith, he couldn't. They, they were, they had to basically agree to disagree from day one. Um, now, in my own pastoral counseling, I don't, I discourage that as strongly as I possibly can. Um, I've seen it in my own family, too. If, you, if husband and wife can't, or excuse me, if the engaged, if you like, or those dating, if you can't reconcile on matters of faith, um, I would strongly discourage marriage. And I know that doesn't make people comfortable. And we have plenty of split households in this congregation. Um, but the reason is not because of your faith, but it's your children. The children. Um, did I tell you the story about... See, I told you I would end there. I tell you the story about uh, one of my customers. Um, I worked in retail who married a Protestant gal, but he was a Jew. And the kids would go to church on Sunday and synagogue on Wednesday. Can you imagine what was going on in those kids' heads? One church denies the Savior and the other one hasn't. One teaches works righteousness. and Well, they probably both did, actually. But, but regardless of that, are the kids going to believe anything? What are they actually being taught? Doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Whatever floats your boat. Mom thinks one thing, dad thinks the other thing. They're both equally valid. Just, just different perspectives. Um, let's just agree to, get a, to disagree or just get along. Um, which is a pretty good way to create an atheist who says, I don't think any of it's true and I don't, I don't think any of it matters. Or whatever I think matters, which is basically the same thing. <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. So that, that, this picture of the household being divided. I mean, the faith does that sometimes. And it's pretty harsh. All right, verse 7 is gospel, so we'll leave that for next week. <laughs> let's, let's close quickly. Uh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, we, we are terrified by your law, the strict judgment for our sin. Um, but you have given us your son, Jesus, our salvation, uh, whom we wait for, whom we look to, uh, who hears our prayers and answers them. We ask that that would be our confidence, never ourselves, but only him. In Jesus' name, amen.